Have you ever doesn't go off because you and what I mean by that is the kind of day when your alarm doesn't go off because you forgot to charge your phone before bed. So you jump into the shower as quickly as you can, only to discover that the water stays cold because the hot water heater stopped working while you were asleep. So you throw on your mismatched clothes, you jump in the car, get stuck in a traffic jam, miss the meeting that you were supposed to attend, and then get lectured by your boss. And then when you're finally free to pack up and leave, you realize that the battery in your car is dead because in the rush of the morning, you accidentally left the headlights on. So when you finally get home, you have a fight with your roommates or with your spouse over the bills that you forgot to pay. So nobody talks. You go to turn on Netflix, but the Wi-Fi isn't working. So then you go to bed early and hope that maybe the next day won't be as bad as today. Now, your experience may not look exactly like the day that I just described, but I'm sure every single one of us can relate because we all know what it's like to have a bad day. On Valentine's Day, 1884, Teddy Roosevelt had a bad day. In fact, it was more than just a bad day. It was an awful day because on that day, Roosevelt received word that his mother had died of typhoid fever. And then just hours later, Roosevelt's wife died of a kidney ailment, just a few days after giving birth to their daughter. And in his journal entry for that day, Roosevelt kept a journal daily. For his entry that day, he drew a large, thick X, as if he wanted to remove that day from history. And then on that day, February 14th, 1884, he wrote just one sentence. The light has gone out of my life. The light has gone out of my life. You know, we've all had bad days. And some of us may have even had a bad day that could rival Teddy Roosevelt's Valentine's Day of 1884. But in the book of Job, we read about a bad day with which none of our experiences, and not even Teddy Roosevelt's experience, can compare. It was a day so bad that every single person around a man named Job, his wife, his friends, his community, and even Job himself, everyone was convinced that somehow, some way, God must be involved. And as we'll see over the next four weeks, they were right. God was involved. Now, we're not going to read every single verse of the book of Job. It's some 40 chapters long, and at times the book can be repetitive. So instead, we're going to study the story by examining some of the central figures each week. And along the way, we're going to be wrestling with challenging questions about God, about Satan, and about suffering. But I hope that by the end, we can see how this difficult book can be a source of wisdom, comfort, and maybe even encouragement during life's darkest storms. So open up to Job chapter 1, verse 1. Feel free to use the Bibles here if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Father, some of us today may be having bad days. Uh, Some of us may have had a bad week, a bad month, a bad year, or a bad decade. But Father, I pray that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of darkness, in the midst of storms, that we would trust in you, 
that we would remember that regardless of what's happening around us, regardless of our circumstances, you are still God. And when we have nothing else to hold on to, I pray that we would hold on to you. Father, be with us as we read your word today. Again, I ask that you use this book today and over the next four weeks to encourage us, to teach us, to comfort us, to challenge us, to faithfulness. And Father, we thank you that you graciously empower us in this walk of faithfulness to you. And Father, I pray that even in this dark book from the Old Testament, I pray that you would help us see how it shines the light on your Son, Jesus Christ, shines the light on our Lord and on our Savior. But Father, be with us as we start reading today. May our worship be honoring to you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the book of Job has intrigued readers for generations. Artists, poets, philosophers, theologians, Christian and non-Christian alike have all looked to Job to help answer some of life's most confusing questions. Questions like, why is there so much suffering in our world? Why do bad things happen to good people? Where is God in the midst of pain and loss? Is God just? Is God wise? Is God all-powerful? Is God good? And perhaps part of the reason the book of Job is so intriguing is because it's so mysterious. We don't know for sure who wrote it, where it was written, or when it was written. We're not even 100% sure where Job is from. It says he's from the city of Uz, but we don't know for sure where that is. But we do know that in the Old Testament, Ezekiel holds Job up as an example of righteousness. In the New Testament, James applauds Job's steadfastness or endurance. But there's still a lot we don't know. And that's part of why the book of Job is so mysterious. But the book of Job is also hotly debated. One of the biggest debates is whether or not the book of Job records historical events. Some argue that these events really did occur, and others argue that this book is more of a poem, or maybe one big, long parable. Now, personally, I'm not convinced it matters all that much. Whether these events really happened as described or not, it doesn't change the book's validity as part of the inspired Word of God, and it also doesn't change the lessons that the book can teach us. But we're not going to learn anything until we read. So Job chapter 1 Starting in verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings, according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. In the words of theologian Frank Sinatra, Job's got the world on a string. He's on top of the world. He's a righteous man. 
Now, that doesn't mean he's perfect. Later in the book, Job confesses that he is a sinner. Later in the book, Job will say some things about God that he'd later come to regret. Later in the book, God will rebuke Job. So Job is not completely without sin. He's not perfect, but he is righteous. And then on top of that, Job is clearly blessed. He has all the telltale signs of blessing in the ancient world. He has offspring, he has livestock, he has servants, he has a good reputation. He's considered the greatest of all the people of the East. Everything is going right for him. Now, Job has obviously done something right to get this far, or so the thinking of his day would go. And then finally, Job is the epitome of that biblical phrase, above reproach. He's not only concerned about his righteousness, he's even concerned about his kids' righteousness. He makes sacrifices on their behalf. He's not even 100% sure they've sinned, but he repents for them, just in case. You never know. But then seemingly, out of nowhere, everything changes for Job. Job, the man who probably hasn't had a whole lot of bad days, has the worst day that you can imagine. Go over to verse 13 of Job chapter 1. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were drinking and eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So in the blink of an eye, Job loses almost everything. Now some of it you can try to explain away if you really want to. For example, having servants killed and livestock stolen, that was probably a common risk. It was just a fact of life in that day and age. Now, admittedly, having it happen twice in one day does seem particularly unlucky, but it's not totally implausible. Maybe there was a bandit conventioning happening close by, and they all got out at the same time. But what about fire from heaven burning up the sheep? And what about a great wind knocking down your house and killing your children? Linda, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the insurance business, that's classified as acts of God. Fire from heaven and great wind. So in light of all this, you can't blame Job. You can't blame Job's wife or Job's friends or Job's surrounding community for asking, Job, what in the world is going on here? 
I mean, we've all had bad days, but this is clearly something different. What are the chances that all of this happening on the same day is just bad luck? Can a day like this really be chalked up to nothing more than some unfortunate coincidences? Is this really just how the cookie crumbles for Job? Look at verse 6 of chapter 1. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So, we see the backstory of Job's bad day when the author gives us this glimpse into heaven, when God calls all of his subjects into his presence. That includes the sons of God, traditionally understood to be angels, but it also includes Satan, the accuser. As we mentioned earlier, Job is a hotly debated book, and one of the debates is the identity of this Satan, but we'll talk about that more next week. For now, in heaven, God asks Satan where he's been. Now, the truth is that God doesn't need to ask anybody anything. He knows everything. But it's worth noting how Satan grovels before God. When God summons Satan, he comes. When God asks Satan a question, he answers. Satan might mope around a little bit. He might have a bad attitude. But there's no question who's the more powerful of the two. But then God brings up Job. And more specifically, he brags about Job. There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Have you considered him? Look at how great he is. But Satan's unimpressed. He suggests that Job only pursues righteousness because God has blessed him so much. Job only worships God so that God will give him more wealth, will make his possessions increase across the land. And Satan is even willing to bet that if you take all that wealth away, if you remove all those blessings, Job will curse God to his face. So God allows Satan to put his theory to the test. He allows Satan to take away All of Job's blessings, the servants, the livestock, the house, the children, all gone. So now the big question becomes, how will Job respond? Chapter 1, verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head 
and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So Job responds the only way anyone in his shoes possibly could. He mourns. He announces that when he entered this world, he had nothing. And now, once again, he has nothing. But as Job mourns, he also worships. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, Satan has already lost the bet. Job lost his wealth, and yet he didn't curse God to his face. He grieved, he hurt, and he complained, but he didn't curse God. He worshipped God. Now, have you ever been in Job's position? Have you ever had a day that bad? As we mentioned earlier, probably not. But that doesn't mean that you haven't suffered. It doesn't mean that you haven't hurt. It doesn't mean that you haven't had a legitimate reason to mourn and complain. You have. And if you haven't yet, someday you will. Someday the doctor will tell you the results were positive. The divorce papers will arrive in the mail. The police will knock on the door in the middle of the night. The baby will stop kicking. You'll see the name of a family member who never calls you pop up on caller ID, and you'll have a gut feeling that something terribly has happened, and you'll be right. We will all suffer. We will all be confronted with loss. We will all face chaos. We will all experience heartbreak. It's not a question of if. It's a question of when. And when those times come, we Christians will find ourselves in the awkward position of trying to grieve and worship at the same time. Eventually, we will all be challenged to repeat the words that Job says here. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In chapter 2, things get even worse for Job. Satan will double down on his bet convincing himself that if plan A didn't work, then plan B will. Taking away Job's children, his livestock, his servants, and his house, that may not have done the trick, but taking away his health will. And once again, God allows Satan to cause havoc. The only limitation is that Satan cannot kill Job. Job is given a horrible skin disease from head to toe. We don't know for sure what the disease is. Some wonder if it may be a form of leprosy. But either way, it's so excruciating that Job's only relief comes when he scrapes himself with pieces of broken pottery. Job's wife makes her only appearance of the book, and she gives Job some advice. Curse God and die. Kill yourself. Perhaps Job's wife said this out of some twisted sense of mercy. Maybe she wanted Job to be put out of his misery. However, she doesn't realize that when she tells Job to curse God and die, she's basically echoing Satan himself. But Job refuses his wife's advice. 
He calls her a fool and reminds her and reminds us. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In other words, Job reminds his wife that God is not the family pet, only deserving our worship when he does what we want him to do. And then the passage ends with a simple phrase. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So again, so far, Satan has lost the bet. Job has proved God right. Job has remained faithful. Now that being said, you may still have questions, and understandably so. Some of those questions may be deep. Job is a heavy book. We're going to talk about those questions more in the coming weeks because the story is far from over. But for today, what are some big overarching lessons to be learned from this introduction to the story of Job? These are lessons we're going to be talking about more over the next few weeks. Lesson number one is that righteous people suffer. Righteous people suffer. Doing the right thing and keeping our noses clean and even a life of worship and obedience to God do not guarantee the absence of suffering. Of all people, we Christians, people who worship the sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ, who ended up dying on a cross, we of all people ought to know this, that righteous people suffer. You can say all the right things, do all the right things, believe all the right things. That doesn't mean you won't suffer. Another lesson is that Satan causes havoc. Now, this is not to say that the same thing that happened to Job will happen to you or happen to me. This is a unique story, and I don't think God and Satan are regularly making bets with our lives hanging in the balance. However, the witness of Scripture is consistent, that Satan is opposed to God and Satan is opposed to you. But thankfully, the witness of Scripture is also consistent, that Satan is no match for God. And he does not win in the end. The third lesson is that God is sovereign. Even when Satan, even Satan answers to God when he calls. When God summons Satan, he comes. God is sovereign, which means that no suffering that ever befalls you or ever befalls me is outside of his power or outside of his knowledge. God may not directly participate in it. God may not endorse it, but God does allow it. Again, God's sovereignty is a tough point to wrap our minds around, one that we might be wrapping our minds around for the rest of our lives. But we'll talk about it more in the weeks ahead. And then a fourth point is that we don't know everything. Another difficult point. Again, it's understandable to ask hard questions about God, about life, about evil, and about suffering. You're allowed to do that. God can handle your tough questions. This church can handle your tough questions. But at some point, we also must humbly acknowledge that we simply don't know everything there is to know about what God is doing in our world and why he allows some things to happen. Coming to grips with the fact that we don't know everything will be a lifelong challenge. And then the final lesson is that the proper response to suffering is trust in God. 
Now, you may hear that and think that sounds overly simplistic, cheesy, corny, overly Christian. But I'm not saying that good Christians have to put on a happy face and pretend that everything's peachy when life is going off the rails. Job doesn't do that. In chapter 3, Job repeatedly and graphically wishes that he had never been born. So Job is not about putting on a happy face. But there are times when there is no way out of our suffering in this life. There are times when there is no medication, no relief, no resolution, and seemingly no light at the end of the tunnel. And in those times of suffering, what else can we do but trust God? All we can do is wait. All we can do is entrust ourselves to him. One of the biggest themes of 1 Peter is instruction for Christians on how to suffer well. So Peter writes in chapter 2, starting in verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure... This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Again, our entire faith revolves around a righteous man, one far more righteous than you or me or even Job. That righteous man suffering unjustly, but also suffering well. This perfect man suffered to redeem sinners from the havoc that Satan released long ago in the Garden of Eden. The havoc of sin and death. And in God's wisdom, in God's sovereignty, in God's grace, Jesus was led to a cross where his body was broken and his blood was shed on our behalf. Now, of course, Peter and the rest of the disciples didn't know everything at the time. They thought everything had gone off the rails when Christ died on that cross. Only later did it all become clear. But I pray that all of us, knowing the goodness and power of God displayed so clearly on the cross, I pray that we would follow in Jesus' steps, that we would suffer well, that we would entrust ourselves to God through that suffering. May we entrust ourselves to him in the good days and in the bad days and in the worst days. Because God didn't let Jesus down. He raised him from the dead. And he will not let us down either, even in the darkest storms of life. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for today. Thank you for your word, every single bit of it, the parts that we 
enjoy reading, the parts that are easy to understand, the parts that make it to our devotional books and our calendars. Father, thank you for those parts of Scripture. But also, thank you for the parts of Scripture that are hard, that are tough to swallow, that bring up difficult questions and force us to think differently and think more deeply about our world, about ourselves, and about you. But Father, I pray that as we wade through the book of Job with all of its difficult questions, with all of the darkness, with all of the sorrow, with all of the suffering, with all of the doubt, I pray that you would hold our hands the entire time, that you would help us understand how this dark and difficult book can be a source of encouragement and peace and comfort during our own forms of suffering. I pray that we would trust you regardless of our circumstances, that we would be able to echo Job's words that whether you give or whether you take away, blessed be your name. So, Father, again, we thank you for who you are and for what you've done for us. We thank you that even when there seems to be no light at the end of the tunnel in this life, we know that you are a God of eternal life. That if you can raise Christ, you can raise us. And that at the end of the day, sin and Satan and death and suffering will not end. Will not win in that life. Father, we love you. We praise you, we worship you, we glorify you, and we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.